The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Oh, you're watching my favorite show, Squawkbox, with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your 6 a.m. headlines. Mario Draghi answers the call, agreeing to form a new Italian government amid the worst economic crisis in the country in decades. The former prime minister, this is interesting, Matteo Renzi, he's told us, CNBC, uh, that uh, Mr. Draghi is the right man for the job. Let me be very clear. Mario Draghi was the Italian who saved the euro. Now I think we'll be the European who will save Italy. And how about this? Crude prices climbing to a one-year high as OPEC Plus producers agree to extend output cuts and US stockpiles fall to their lowest level since March. Takeover investigation. The Financial Times reports that EU and UK officials will investigate NVIDIA's $40 billion acquisition of UK chip designer Arm, with one source telling the paper it could be banned. Swiss industrial giant ABB posts a fourth-quarter earnings loss, saying its outlook remains muted across its oil and gas and power units, but adding orders should turn positive in the second quarter. And stay with the programme this morning. We've got a major focus on the big earnings news coming out of European corporates. And we've got a slew of executives. Let's just tell you who's coming up on the programme. We'll have the CFO of Deutsche Bank, as well as the CEOs of ABB and OMV. And we'll also hear from the CEOs of Volvo Cars, Roche and Unilever. I will definitely stay for the three hours. I recommend you do too. Jeff's absolutely right, as ever, Karen. The truism came out of his voice. You have to come and watch this show for three hours because we've got so much going on uh, today. A whole host of earnings. I'm waiting for Deutsche Bank earnings uh, to hit the wire. I know you're specifically concentrating on OMV, Karen, as well. Uh, And uh, we have Roche figures out as well. The pharmaceutical division, though, sales declining 2%. And I think that's a very interesting line, Jeffrey. I know there's other interesting stuff in there. The fact is, despite this new focus on healthcare, the secular trends we kept, keep getting told by all the analysts as well. Actually, some of the underlying businesses are not finding growth. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Take a look at uh, Roche's share price. And I think it tells you an interesting story about where this company sits at the moment in this particular healthcare um, story that you're talking about, Steve, because Roche has been a beneficiary of the pandemic. I don't think uh, anybody would quibble with that. They have an antigen test that has uh, stepped in and been involved uh, very much in the process of um, uh, COVID-19 testing. And you saw the benefit of that come through in the third quarter numbers. And I think we talked to Severin Schwan about that uh, over the last quarter here. The question is, you know, what is the further upside for Roche? And as you mentioned, uh, the 
Um, the pharmaceuticals division has reported this uh, 2% decline in sales, uh, group sales increasing at 1% at constant exchange rates, according to the numbers. The company itself uh, describes these as a solid set of figures. It is the diagnostics division, though, that again has shone through, and that's the one where we find the pandemic uh, testing. So the uh, diagnostics division sales growth up 14% for the full year, up uh, 28% for uh, the fourth quarter here. And the group says it will uh, push forward with a a dividend increase. The company says the outlook for 2021, despite some uh, strong impact um, on some areas of the business, sales are expected to grow. Core earnings per share targeted to grow broadly in line with sales, and they will increase their dividend in Swiss francs further. The uh, key message, I think, is uh, that even as we continue to see growth in the diagnostics operations, of course, they've also suffered to a certain extent with the lockdown on medical procedures and uh, obviously the concomitant use of drugs uh, related to uh, the pandemic a series of of, of lockdowns, effectively. So uh, as we've seen, other operations and other treatments have suffered as the uh, medical industry has focused, by and large, on COVID-19. But it'd be very interesting to to catch up with the company later and have that conversation about whether they're beginning to see any shift in those trends and what the likelihood is for the diagnostics business to continue to do well over the coming quarter, guys. can I just do something? Indulge me for a second here. Um, I, I work with one charity. It's a cancer charity. Uh, and I just want to say it's World Cancer Day here in the UK as well today. And I think you make the point very well in what you were saying about Roche there, Jeff, that there are other illnesses and other diseases out there. Now, look, I get COVID. I, I, well, I haven't got COVID, but I get COVID. I, it's kind of, it, it's, it's stunningly important for the world to move on in many, many ways. But there are many other devastating illnesses out there, which companies like Roche and others are focusing on aggressively. And I just want people to just take a step back one day and say that it's not just COVID, okay? There's some really important stuff out there. So I just wanted to mark uh, World Cancer Day. Funnily enough, we know that you don't have COVID because of all the the tests that you've been having. I've had three different tests this week (laughs) already. But what Roche is coming up with, fascinating, because I think we're all sort of sick of being poked very high up a nasal cavity by a very long stick. It's getting sore up there now. Right. Well, Roche has been working on this new technology where you target the frontal part of the, the, the nose so you don't go as far up and collect uh, the, the swab, which oh, I think is very welcome for those of us getting know, regular I mean, testing. No one wants to hear about our medical experiences. <laughs> I think it? others are going through it as well. If I you're know. in the office, but, but you're getting swabbed. the lady turned up a couple of days ago and she had something akin to the size of a big pencil. She goes, I'm sorry, we've got the longer ones today. I'm like, oh, jeez, no. how much further can she go up my left nostril? You know. Anyway, Jeff's smiling, Riley. He knows that experience. Uh, shall I move on? <laughs> Well, so from my left nostril to Mario Draghi. Uh, The former ECB chief has uh, accepted Italian President Sergio Mattarella's mandate to form a new technocratic government, resolving the month-long political crisis in Rome. Uh, Draghi must now find a majority within a divided parliament before tackling his two priorities, completing the country's vaccination programme and fixing the economy. The newly appointed Prime Minister spoke to the nation after meeting with President Mattarella, insisting the moment to relaunch the country has arrived. 
Knowing the scale of this emergency calls for solutions which can match the challenges we face. It is with hope and commitment that I am answering the call of the President of the Republic. Beating the pandemic, completing the vaccination campaign, responding to citizens' everyday problems and reopening the country are the challenges we need to confront. So how about this? Mario Draghi has the backing of Italia Viva Party leader Matteo Renzi. Now, dare I say it, this is a gentleman who has been Prime Minister, possibly has aspirations to be Prime Minister again, but he's given Draghi his backing. And he spoke to Jumana in a first on CNBC interview and spoke about the former ECB chief and said he's the best man to lead the country in the moment of crisis. Renzi triggered the political crisis, of course, last month by withdrawing from the ruling coalition, took his party out, didn't he, after disputes with the former Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte over the use of EU recovery funds. I'm so happy because today Italy is in very good hands. That is the priority. Mario Draghi is a special man. Uh, he's, he served as a governor uh, of Italian banks and um, president of ECB. That is the first point. About myself and uh, my strategy, a lot of people uh, think uh, that is uh, that was a not good strategy when I opened a political crisis during pandemic. But I think, that is my view, exactly in this pandemic, Italy had an unbelievable chance to change everything. And Mario Draghi probably is the best, the best, the best man to serve as prime minister in this moment. So I don't think I had a plan. I'm sure now Italy have a dream, and this dream is in the hands of Mario Draghi. Well, the last time we had a technocratic government with Mario Monti, it didn't end up so well. Many people were unhappy with some of the policies he's in, he introduced at the time. What makes you think that it will be different under Mario Draghi? It's totally different because uh, Mario Draghi was a civil servant before he became a um, president of ECB. He worked in uh, not only in the American universities and Stanford universities, but also in uh, uh, public service as a general director of treasury. And particularly, um, the differences uh, is uh, the differences are clear. Uh, during Mario Monti's prior government, uh, Italy was uh, totally in crisis without money and. Uh, that is a moment in which Italy have a lot of money to invest in education, in healthcare, because that comes from um, next generation EU, the most important plan from European Union. And let me be very clear, more important than Marshall plan after Second World War. So there are a difference between the single person. Mario Monti is not Mario Draghi. There are differences for the age, because that is a time of investment, not time of cut. And if I have one example and uh, one benchmark possible, I think Mario Monti, Mario Draghi's government, Mario Draghi's government, uh, it seems more near to the Carlo Azzelio Ciampi's government. Thirty years ago, when uh, Carlo Azzelio Ciampi saved uh, Italy in the um, last year of the last century, let me be very clear. 
Mario Draghi was the Italian who saved Euro. Now I think will be the European who will save Italy. Well, that's a very strong line you say there, uh, Mr. Renzi. But again, if he is presented as the silver bullet for Italy and he doesn't succeed, what's next for the country? I believe uh, Mario, Mario Draghi will be able to achieve the vote of confidence in the parliament and invest, I think, first of all, in three great projects. The first is vaccine because Italy, unfortunately, is the country around the world with the worst performance in terms of relation between death for COVID and citizens. That is a problem. We are the worst, and that is very sad. This, and vaccine is the only way, is the only safety way for us. Second point is economy, because uh, we closed uh, last year with minus 9% of GDP. This is a tragedy if you think about the performances of uh, Italian economy. That means half million people without jobs. Uh, that means a lot of small and medium enterprise closed. The third point is the education. As a father, I think that is a priority. Uh, we are the country, we probably one of the countries with a low level of numbers of days in the school. That is unbelievable problem because we lost generation. For one year, we closed the schools more than other countries, more than Germany, more than France, more than UK. So three very important emergencies, jobs and economy, uh, healthcare and uh, uh, pandemic, education and school, I think will be the key points for the new uh, way of Mario Draghi's government. And I believe that will be a great government. So I'm not worried because I'm sure Mario Draghi will be able to create a cabinet to achieve the vote of confidence and probably in the next year to transform our country because our country is unbelievable, is magnificent. We have a lot of problems with the politics, but we are a great, great, great country. Uh, Matteo Renzi there, I'm just uh, going to pick up with some of the, those market yeah. signals we saw yeah. yesterday. We thought that Mario Draghi would Sorry be a positive catalyst for the markets and we certainly saw an outperformance from the MIB yesterday. 2% it closed up versus a fairly flat day for, say, the French market gains for the German market. Nowhere near what Huge we saw in Italy, but also that yield coming back on the Italian 10-year bond. The question I have is how much more can the Draghi effect have on that bond yield? Because it used to trade very close to the Spanish yield, but still a differential between the two. Now, can I leave that question hanging there? Because I just want to just trail the fact that we've got Deutsche Bank numbers coming out now. These shares have rallied extraordinarily off their lows, but they're still one of the least rated banks by the key measures uh, here in Europe as well, with a 0.33 price to book as well, which is as low as you get anywhere really as well. But the shares have doubled from their 445 low to a 959 uh, level I've seen as their high. A 8.73 was the closing level yesterday. So we're waiting for the Deutsche Bank numbers any second now. 
uh, which I believe should be hitting the wires now. And I've just ad-libbed for a you few seconds and it's not there. Draghi and I'm on their website as well. Deutsche. Don't forget, Draghi spent many years uh, battling some of the low savings uh, rates that we saw and, the, and the, the backlash that came from German savers, how to fix uh, some of these banks and ensure that there were very strong institutions across Europe. He spoke about the transmission mechanism for many years. So as we, we sort of set the scene to talk about Deutsche on the back of Mario Draghi, there was that natural link. But, uh, of course, uh, well, things Mario Draghi is a Goldman Sachs man, of course. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think we're going to take the break because we've given up waiting for Deutsche. <laughs> uh, what happened to this great German efficiency? Six o'clock, then 6.15. And uh, I think they need to reset their watches, don't they, over in Frankfurt? Anyway, coming up on the show. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about the oil market as the Austrian oil and gas company, OMV, projects higher sales volumes for 2021. The CEO, Rainer Siele, joins us after the break to talk about those numbers. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Let me take you to the U.S. market action yesterday, and it was a fairly flat session versus what we've witnessed in recent days, some of the trading frenzy really abating from both the large funds and smaller retail investors. The Nasdaq, just a little bit flat, as you can see by the finish, uh, drifting off two points. A few different cross currents there around stocks have been reporting after the close and big changes in in the C-suite. So we'll get into that in just a moment, but you can see the Dow and the S&P just leaning positive. A couple of different factors at play. Well, you've seen that army of retail investors settle down some of the stocks they were targeting just fading in session yesterday. That said, uh, investors very much eyeing the stimulus side, hopes that the Democrats will come up that, with that $1.9 trillion package or something close to that targeted number. That's putting a little bit more risk back into the market. So let's switch over to US tech. You can see how different the, the view was across the board. One of the bigger drags on the market was Amazon. And don't forget we had that announcement about Jeff Bezos stepping away from the CEO role to take up uh, the executive chairman position. But Alphabet, this is a huge driver for the stock market on the back of its earnings result. The stock was up about 7% in after hours. That translated to the US session. Uh, moving on to the VIX, and you can see how much we've abated on the fear gauge as those uh, army of uh, retail investors have just settled down a little bit on their trades. You can see uh, we've retreated uh, quite a bit to around the 22 handle, well off the 30 plus levels we were trading at. It's been slowly tracking down in recent sessions, so we really are coming off uh, the levels that we saw in the past week or so. Steve, uh, we've got Deutsche numbers, do we? Yeah, I'll just run through a couple of quick headlines because I know we've got a, a big CEO waiting in the wings as well. So, fourth quarter net attributable to shareholders, the profit is 51 million euros, so scraping into positivity. Um, they also say provisions for credit losses, 251 million euros in the fourth quarter. Uh, FIC sales and trading revenues, 1.38 billion. So just following that strong trend we saw from Wall Street and some of the bigger European players. Uh, net revenues, 5.45 billion euros. And a line from Herr Dr. Christian Saving, who says confident the overall positive trend will continue into 2021, despite challenging times.
Austrian oil and gas company OMV saw its comparable operating profit more than half in the fourth quarter compared to a year before. But it projects sales volumes will pick up in 2021. Despite being hit by the pandemic, it's proposing a dividend of 1.85 euros per share. Rana Celia joins us, the CEO of OMV. Nice to have you back with us. Let me ask you about how that fourth quarter played out because I know as you reported results last quarter, you had the, the dual impact of uh, weaker oil price and uncertainty around demand. Clearly, the challenges around demand continued with the pandemic in the fourth quarter, but prices, oil prices, did start to improve. So did that make a difference in the fourth quarter? Yeah, uh, good morning, Karen. Absolutely. We have seen a further recovery of uh, our business in the fourth quarter, especially uh, the upstream business kicked in on a higher level uh, on the back of higher oil and especially gas prices as OMB is more a gas company than an oil company. But if you look into the numbers, you will find out that we have a pretty stable downstream business and a much, much higher contribution from Borealis was the right timing to make that acquisition in 2020. I know it was a brave uh, decision from OMV, but now the anticyclical acquisition is paying off. Uh, so just in the fourth quarter, when we closed the acquisition, the volumes went up, the margins went up, and our outlook, especially in chemicals, looks uh, pretty good also into 21. So uh, all in all, uh, OMV continues to be a cash a company. We have seen uh, a very high cash flow uh, in the fourth quarter. It continues into the first quarter now. Although we have seen a COVID year in 2020, the operating cash flow went, uh, is with uh, 3.1 billion euros, only pint, pint, a billion euros less than the previous year. As you talk about cash, I want to bring up the dividend because you've proposed a 1.85 euro per share payout to shareholders. This has been a very interesting reporting season where we've heard a slew of announcements around dividends and share buybacks. How much pressure are you seeing from the investor community to, to up those payouts after what was a period of suspensions across the sector and more broadly across many companies in Europe? Look, Aaron, it's not the pressure from the investors making the decision. I think it is just a positive signal from OMV management that we do see a very good uh, year 21 coming up. Well, it will be a first uh, difficult half of 21, but uh, we are full of optimism. If you look into uh, the environment, we see that oil prices are now on a totally different level. Gas prices, the cold winter helped. So, uh, and we are expecting also in 21 that our cash flow will further, operating cash flow will further increase. And our um, asset disposal program uh, finished on time last year. We have announced a second asset disposal program. Therefore, I think we will see a recovery of our gearing ratio and uh, we will see especially a high cash flow making uh, this proposal of an, a higher dividend in uh, 2020. Ryan, always a pleasure speaking to you. I'm, I'm looking at some copy on your website and, and you're making the absolute point, gas stunningly clean compared with coal. But there are others fighting the battle against gas, saying, uh, despite what you're saying, renewable energies are ready now to replace gas as well. But before we can run, we have to walk as well. Why are too many governments in Europe still wedded to huge amounts of coal production for their electricity grids? Well, I think uh, from time to time you have to make uh, brave decisions and I think you have to give uh, gas a priority. 
what I can see is that especially the share of renewables will increase. It doesn't matter how much coal you have in your energy mix, renewables are getting a kick uh, also in the next years to come. And if you really would like uh, to avoid uh, really blackouts uh, with your system, then you should have the flexibility of natural gas-fired pilots uh, in your portfolio. And that's why I think that gas has a good chance in the next years to come. Rainer, we've got the same uh, uh, view on uh, Nord Stream 2, even though we have a new administration in the White House. Uh, Could you just update us? What is your view at the moment on the comments we've heard from Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and the current position from uh, Washington on opposition to Nord Stream 2, a project that you still remain very much engaged in? Well, I do hope that this will not be an everlasting story. Uh, so uh, on the one hand side, I can see that uh, especially the threat of sanctions might be a topic they are going to discuss. In general, I think uh, we shouldn't politicize our pipeline investments. Uh, the industry shouldn't pay the ticket if uh, uh, diplomacy is not working to solve uh, political conflicts. So at the end, I, I think uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline company hasn't confirmed now that they will uh, restart pipeline activities in the Danish borders. But I press my thumbs that they are going to start as early as possible and that they are going to make a pipeline record in, in, the, uh, in, the, is, uh, in the Baltic Sea. So uh, all in all, we have to wait and see. I have a little bit more concern that uh, Europe stay a little bit more together. Uh, I think that especially France is now looking on the project a little bit uh, with different eyes. And uh, all I can ask is that Germany and France should align because the pipeline is of European interest. And as we know, also companies from France do have an interest that this pipeline will come into operation. Yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned that issue of uh, European unity at the moment, because we're obviously looking at a lot of disunity around the current uh, pandemic issue and uh, vaccinations. But I guess we always look to see whether a shift in leadership brings a shift in focus and policy. Do you have any concerns at all that uh, the departure of Angela Merkel and a new chancellor in Germany might mean there is also a more, should we say, robust line against Russia and therefore against Nord Stream 2? Well, I think it's not only a single country really making the future, especially it's the relationship between Russia and the European Union, which is of utmost importance. Of course, there's a pipeline project uh, which is now in the headlines, but uh, I think uh, we are going to see elections upcoming in Germany and uh, we are going to see a new chancellorship. If I look back in the recent history, we always could get uh, a very good leadership in Germany and this will be continued from my point of view. Um, I'm now I'm more in favor that uh, we are not discussing conflicts, political conflicts. I think uh, we should uh, ask ourselves how can we cooperate and how can we intensify a little bit more our cooperation with Russia because we are just in the middle building bridges between East and West. 
And uh, I, I do hope, uh, especially from an industry point of view, uh, that we are not uh, running into uh, more conflicts with Russia, that we are trying to get uh, a better business environment. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.